And this is Job 14, 14. Job says, If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. Job asked the fundamental question of every age of man. If a man dies, will he live again? It's the question that's been wrestled with by humanity, by philosophers. As people have tried to tap into the fountain of youth, as people have asked questions about other religions, about reincarnation, about, you know, what is truth? Is man really uh, a higher being made in the image of God, made to live forever? Is he just some sort of elevated animal who has a little higher capacity to think and reason? Therefore, he asks deep and philosophical questions that the animals don't get to. That's the question that I think when we're asking in reality, is man, as Lauren Isley put it, just a cosmic orphan? He's bound to ask these big questions, but he has no really exhilarating answers. William Lane Craig, who's been a, really a, an apologist on the front lines, an expert on many uh, of these issues, including the resurrection, said that the Enlightenment really didn't do much for man because once man eliminated God from the equation, all the answers that he found were dark. If there is no God, then there is no afterlife then this is all there is, and you can then join the, the troops that are now saying that DNA is all there is, and we just kind of dance to its music, and some people get lucky, and some people don't, and some people live a long life, and some people don't, and some people get cancer, and some people don't, and it's just kind of just the roll of the dice. But the Bible has a very different story, doesn't it? And the Bible... In the book, all the way back in the book of Job. And remember when Job asked the question about if a man dies, if a woman dies, will they live again? He's asking the question in the midst of unbelievable suffering. This man probably saved Jesus Christ except for Jesus Christ has suffered more than any human being that we may ever know of. He hasn't died himself, but he, he's gone through this cumulative suffering of loss and destitution and his wife even couldn't encourage him. I mean, it's, it's been tough. And now his comforters, so-called, his so-called friends have come from a distance only to more add to more agony to his heart. Notice his response. He's responding to Zophar in chapter 12, verse 1. It says Job responded, and they go back and forth between Job responding to the so-called comforters. He's in the immediate context, he's responding to Zophar, but really to all of the comforters, all three that have spoken. He says, truly then, Job 12, 2, you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. If you have a New Living Translation, it says you people really know everything, don't you? And when you die, wisdom will die with you. We might put it in a modern phrase. You guys think you're all that and a bag of chips and a cookie, don't you? You think that you've cornered the market on wisdom, don't you? You think that you've nailed the reason that I'm suffering, the reason that I've gone through the losses that I've gone through. Job responds like a man who can't take it anymore. 
You've probably all been there before. Well, you just can't take one more negative comment. You can't take one more bad driver on the freeway. <laughs> you can't take one more negative criticism of your work, of your personality. Fill in the blank. And so Job says, well, I guess you guys know everything. Job is being sarcastic because he's deeply wounded. His losses have hurt. His wife has wounded him. His body's racked with pain. His mind is swimming with questions. But worst of all, Job is hurt because he believes that God has become his enemy. It's one thing when the whole world turns against you. It's another thing when the one being that you thought you could depend on when all else failed apparently now has become your enemy or considers you his enemy. At the moment, how can anyone blame Job for acting the way he's acting, for asking the questions he's asking? One writer says, when Job says, the people or you people, it denotes the upper class, the landed nobility, the kind of people who really matter in the world's eyes. Now, I think it would be good for us, all of us, to pause for a moment and take an aerial view of the book of Job and ask the question, why are we reading this? Why is this content in our Bibles? There's a couple of reasons, and one of the reasons I've put before you is to show you that there is such a thing in the Bible as redemptive suffering, and I'll add something to that and call that righteous suffering. Job is a righteous man who is suffering. Not all suffering is the result of sin or unrighteousness in your life. That's one of the big ideas of the book of Job that we've been trying to land on is that not everything that happens in this world is a result of unrepentant sin or a result of something we did wrong. And I've been telling you that Job's suffering is pointing us to the greater Job's suffering. His name is Jesus. Jesus had questions too. You may remember in Mark 15, 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried. The English translation are these words. My God, my God. Do you remember? Why? Why have you forsaken me? A little bit before that, the night before that, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Gospel of John tells us that his heart was troubled. He felt a lot of heaviness about what he was going to face, and he cried to the Father, and he said, Father, if it's possible, would you please let this cup pass from me? That's why when you pray to Jesus, when you pray to your great high priest in heaven, who is still human, theologians would agree that he is still the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. That's why you need to know that he can understand your suffering. He knows what it means to be rejected, to be betrayed by a friend, to have his lead apostle tell him he would die for him and then deny him three times. Job's life reveals that a committed believer will at times encounter disciplinary or loving suffering from the hand of the Father. But sometimes the committed faithful believer will suffer righteously. Jesus is the prime example of righteous suffering, but there are others. 
Stephen in the book of Acts. He confronts the Sanhedrin and they stoned Stephen and he's forgiving the, those who stoned him while he's dying. He becomes just like his master. And in the book of Acts chapter 9, the Lord's talking to Ananias. Ananias has questions about this Saul who's going to become Paul. And Jesus says to Ananias, go. He, he, Saul, who becomes Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him, Acts 9.16, how much he must suffer for me. That's the commissioning of the Apostle Paul. I will show him how much he must suffer for me. And this is nothing new, because if we open our eyes to the Bible, we know that even Jesus gave a mandate to take up your cross and follow him. I know that a lot of us don't put those verses on our refrigerator in the morning, but the truth of the matter is that the righteous will suffer. And I think that one of the ways that you need to see the book of Job is medicine for the soul of the sufferer. That's why a lot of us have opened the book of Job at strategic moments in our own Christian journey. Maybe it's a book that we kind of neglected. We knew the basic story of Job, but now we've been going verse by verse. And a lot of the faces I see here are faces that started at the beginning. Praise the Lord. Because we're learning a lot from the book of Job. See, we need to be reminded of the reality that Job is suffering, but not for unrighteousness. He's been judged by his friends, but he's been judged wrongly. And it is true that you can't always judge the substance of a book by its cover. So Job's comforters and critics give their speeches. Job is frustrated and so he basically says, oh, I get it now. You guys have cornered the, the market on wisdom. But I have, verse 3, intelligence as well as you. NIV, I have a mind. ESV, I have understanding. I'm not inferior to you. And who does not know such things? Zophar, in chapter 11, verse 12, not only implied, he pretty much said that Job was an idiot. He almost, beyond implied saying, Job, there's no hope for you. If you can't figure this out by now, well then, I don't know what we're going to do with you. By the way, side note for you Bible students, this is Job's longest speech. That's why we're going to try to take the whole chunk here. And I'll, we'll break it down as we go. Job says, verse 4, chapter 12, he says, I am a joke. I'm a laughing stock, NIV, ESV, to my friends. The one who called on God and answered him, and he answered him, the just and blameless man is a joke. Can you imagine what Job has gone through? He was probably one of the most respected men of the East. He had a huge uh, property. He had servants. He had animals. He was a righteous man with a blameless reputation. And now he's sitting on an ash heap and he's lost everything. Job is probably the modern example of a man who would be all, all on the tabloids in the supermarket line. Job's disaster. Job's fall. Job, a joke? Question mark. More in the next issue of The Inquirer. 
because inquiring minds want to know. Ooh, look at Job. He looks awful. Oh, he looks terrible. He was so good looking before. Now he's got boils everywhere. There's even one on the tip of his nose. That's how people are. People normally celebrate the demise of people who are doing well. That's why those magazines sell. Because we, we look, oh, look at that. Boy, poor soul. Man, I guess compared to him, I'm doing all right. Job says, I'm a joke to you guys. I had a reputation. I had good things. But he says, he who is at ease holds calamity and contempt, verse 5, as prepared for those whose feet slip NIV. Men at ease have contempt for misfortune. The men who look on and comment with contempt are not living the calamity. Their system of beliefs make, makes them untouchable. Job's misfortune is clear evidence to them of unrepentant and unforgiven sin. As Shakespeare put it, he jests at scars that never felt a wound, close quote. It's funny to people who have never been in the pain that you've been in. They can look at you and they minimally cannot relate. Or more than that, some people just think, wow, maybe they're overreacting. Maybe, are they getting, going a bit overboard or going too far? The idea here of the feet slipping is they deserved it. Their feet were so close to slipping anyway. Job's crisis is his, is his fault. And then Job says, the tents of the destroyer, destroyers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power. Ironically, the, the ungodly, the opposite of Job, are at peace and secure. Job says, what's wrong with this picture? Sometimes it makes me want to scream. Ever been there before? Why that person is doing so well, and I know they're the most corrupt individual living on the planet right now. But eventually even that corruption comes out, as I'm sure you've noticed with all the news stories that come out one after the other. But now, Job says, ask the beasts, let them teach you the birds of the heavens, let them tell you, verse 8, or to the earth, let it teach you. Let the fish of the sea declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, and whose hand is the life of every living thing, the breath of all mankind? Does not the ear test words, the palate taste its food, as the palate tastes its food? Wisdom is with aged men, with long life is understanding. One writer says it's likely that verses 7 through 12 is Job parroting what his friends have said to him. Note the pronouns, you, you, you. Let the heavens tell you. Let it each teach you. Let the fish of the sea declare to you. They've told Job that the beasts and the birds know these ABCs about life. You reap what you sow. Even the fish under the sea could tell you. Some of you remember that movie. Under the sea. Under the sea. Hey, Job, as the bubbles are going up to the surface, you know how this works, don't you? People mess up. They get what's coming to them. That's the way the world works. Religion 
philosophy, you name it. And Job is saying, you think you have the wisdom. With him are wisdom and might, 13. To him belong counsel and understanding. Behold, he tears down and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons a man and there can be no release. Behold, he restrains the waters and they dry up. He sends them out and they inundate the earth. Verses 13 through 15, Job reiterates God's sovereignty and power. Part of what Job is saying is that we can't put God in a box. He is good, but he's not tame. Or as we learn in the C.S. Lewis stories, he's good, but he's not always safe. And here's God. And God has a history of doing these kinds of things, like he inundates the earth with a flood. He tears down, and who can rebuild? He imprisons. Jonah tried to run from him, and Jonah ended up in prison three days in the belly of a great sea monster. He restrains the waters, and he dries them up. He dried up the path of the Red Sea. He sends them out to inundate the earth. He flooded the earth. God is strong and powerful. He has control over natural disasters. He flooded the world in judgment. He used a fish to track down Jonah and bring him back to his mission. What is Job saying, you ask, simply this? Maybe your system, in quotes, how you've put God in a box is not really how God is at all. See, God is God, and God does what He pleases. He God, me not. He made the world and the universe, I did not. And Job is saying, maybe, guys... Maybe we need to leave a little wiggle room for God doing things outside of our box that we've created. With him, 16, our strength and sound wisdom, the misled and the misleader belong to him. He makes counselors, notice all the lofty titles here, walk barefoot. He makes fools of judges. He loosens the bond of kings, binds their loins with a girdle. He makes priests, religious leaders, walk barefoot and overthrows the secure ones. He deprives the trusted ones of speech, takes away the discernment of the elders, the respected leaders of a culture. He pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belt of the strong. I'm sure you can think of your stories of counselors, judges, kings, priests, and nobles, elders, who felt so secure, looked so discerning, so solid, and their life was turned upside down in a microsecond. How about old Nebuchadnezzar goes out on his patio? This is the great Babylon that I have built. God hears and says, oh yeah, Nebuchadnezzar? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Your hair's going to grow long. You're going to paint your long fingernails. You're going out on the lawn and you're going to eat grass for seven years until you realize I'm running the universe, not you. How about King David? God raised up King David from a shepherd boy. And David had everything at his fingertips, but he chased after another man's wife. And God knew what was going on. And God sent the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan told David a story about these two families. And you know the story. And finally, Nathan says to David, you are that man. And David has to now deal with the loss of a child trying to clean up a mess that he hid for a year. David knew this. Belshazzar knew it. He saw the writing on the wall. King Herod knew how quickly God 
could change your day or your year or end your life when you don't give honor to him. Religious leaders are no exception. God has dealt over the years with priests, high priests, false prophets, you name it. God is God, we are not. And God reveals mysteries from the darkness, 22. He brings the deep darkness into light. He makes nations great, then destroys them. He can raise up a people and then take them down. He enlarges the nations and then he then leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people, makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. A drunken man. Now remember, Job is responding to Zophar and the other speeches, but Job is saying, look, I think God is much bigger and maybe unpredictable than you guys think. I'll give you a case example right now. I love this country. I love America. I love the freedom that we have here. I know we're an imperfect nation, but we have a lot to celebrate, amen, as Americans. But we are still a nation and still an imperfect nation. And if we get too proud and we think that we're all that because we're America, we have to be careful. We need to cry out to God because God can raise up nations and take them down. And we have a lot of talk going on. We're the greatest you know, nation that's ever been on the face of the earth. That may be in terms of how you weigh that and whatever. We could have a debate about it. But we better be careful because I believe our greatness is related to God's grace. Would you agree? And that's what Job is saying. He's saying, look, before you get all high and mighty and think this couldn't happen to you, it happened to me, and it could happen to you. God raises up and takes down. Think of Israel, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. You could blow most of those nations into the dust because they were once uh, so powerful seemed so unbeatable. And then God said, enough is enough. He did it to his own people. Assyria, he allowed to destroy the northern kingdom. Babylon took down the southern kingdom and took Israel into captivity for 70 years. So Job may be saying something like this. No people or no nation should get all high and mighty or prideful for God can bring us low. God doesn't fit with your system, gentlemen, and he never did. See, Job is starting to learn some things about God that maybe we need to learn as well. I'm not saying Job has everything perfectly right, but I think he's throwing something out that is uncomfortable for his friends. We move into chapter 13. Praise the Lord. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear, Job continues, has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty. And I desire to argue with God, but you smear with lies. You are worthless physicians. And all God's people said, ouch, Job. Worthless. His friends had come from afar to bring comfort to his life. And he says, you guys are worthless to me. 
You're worthless doctors. Doctors are supposed to try to heal the patient. You've done nothing but cause additional hurt to me. You're worthless. How many of you remember the woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years? Mark 5, 26 says she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was not helped at all. In fact, Mark says her condition became worse and she heard about Jesus. And she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. And remember in the midst of the crowd with everybody pressing into Jesus, so much to do, so many people in need, she reached out the hand of faith, grabbed the edge of his cloak, and she was healed. Her blood disorder dried up after 12 long years. And Jesus turned and said, who touched me? And the apostles said, Lord, everybody's touching you. Do you see the mass of humanity? No, Jesus said, somebody touched me with the touch of faith because power went out of me. And he looked, and the woman was there trembling. Remember? And Jesus reassured her. Aware of what happened to her, came and fell down at Jesus' feet. She told him the whole truth of her situation. And Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. I need a great physician. I need a doctor for my soul. How many of you have gone to the doctor before? You put it off, you put it off, you put it off. You go to the doctor and he gives you two prescriptions to pick up. And you already have three at home of the same medication. You're like, I went to the doctor, and he said, here, take this, take two of these, and don't call me in the morning. <laughs> You're like, what was I doing? I'm not saying don't go to the doctor. But I'm saying, look, we need the ultimate physician. These guys have done nothing for Job. In fact, Job follows it up. He says, he says oh, that you would be completely silent. <laughs> Loose translation, shut up. And that it would become your wisdom. Job needs some gospel medicine, not more of the same old, same old. Telling people just to think positive, don't worry. I'll be happy. Do good and the universe will do good back to you. Say what? Just speak to the universe when you eat the cookie. Oh, universe. This cookie is not going to make me gain one pound. <laughs> you are out of luck because the universe has no personality. There's one running the universe. His name is God. Have you ever prayed before you ate dessert? Maybe you should. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a theological conundrum. <laughs> Have you ever sat around, listened to the talking heads, and thought, what in the world is that going to do? What will that produce? If I address a group of 100 people at a memorial service, and I don't tell them about the gospel medicine when every person sitting in that room knows they're going to face their own mortality, what have I done for them? Oh, yes. We need to be gracious. Oh, yes, we've all sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Oh, yes, I need to hear the story of the good news of Jesus. 
But if we don't tell people about the gospel medicine, the remedy of the great, greatest physician of all, amen, what are we doing? I heard Alistair Begg say earlier on his broadcast, if we sit there and have a man in the pulpit who doesn't believe in the cross, the resurrection, the virgin birth, he doesn't believe any of it, why is anybody going to bother to come to churches? You might as well go play golf or do something else. And he's right. Even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. Proverbs 17, 28. When he closes his lips, he is counted prudent. Job says, maybe silence should be the new norm for you guys. Or you've heard it put this way. Better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open it and dispel all doubt. And that's where Job is with these guys. Please hear my argument, six. Listen to the contentions of my lips. Will you speak what is unjust for God? Speak what is deceitful for Him? Will you show, verse 8, partiality for Him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when He examines you? Or will you deceive Him as one deceives a man? He will surely reprove you. If you secretly show partiality, will not His majesty terrify you? The dread of Him who of him fall on you? Your memorable sayings and proverbs of ashes, your defenses are defenses of clay. Do you ever get nervous for people who say they're speaking for God and you hear what they say and you're like, oh my, my, my. Uh, that's not what God says about that subject. And people talk. But one day, guess what? You're going to get a personal interview with God. <laughs> And that's why the Bible says, let not many of you become teachers because we will incur the stricter judgment, James 3.1. Look, I take that very seriously. That's why I try to study my Bible diligently <laughs> so I can present it to you faithfully. And of course, we know God has grace for us and all of that, but Job is saying, you've misrepresented God. You've claimed to speak for God, but your arguments are ashes. Your defenses are clay. They're brittle. They're nothing. They're empty. Be silent before me so that I may speak. 13. Then let come on me what may. They've been warning Job not to talk to God the way he has. But Job says, why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? And then he says famously, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. They kept saying to Job, Job, don't say that. You can't say that. And Job was like, who else am I going to say it to? He's my only hope and my only answer. So I'm going to be as gracious as I can with my words, but I'm still going to inquire. I'm still going to put my case. I'm still going to say, why, Lord? I'm still going to try to understand. And if he slays me, if he takes my life, I know I'm taking my life in my hands right now. I'm bracing myself for danger, but even if he slays me, I will hope in him. This is the only approach to Job that makes sense. I must bring my arguments to my God and my maker. And this also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. Would you all hold your place in Job? Go to Philippians chapter 1. I want to show you in the Septuagint, which is the Greek, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Philippians 1. 
uh, this exact phraseology and language is used uh, in Job as used by Paul in the Greek language in Philippians 1.19. Let's take a look together. Paul is in prison. He's talking about um, good things have come from his crisis or his trial. Even though some people are jumping on board and doing things out of selfish ambition and so forth, Job appreciates what's happening, or I'm sorry, Paul appreciates what's happening because the gospel at least is being preached. And he says, uh, Philippians 1.19, I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance or my salvation through your prayers or intercessory prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, and what's your Bible say? And to die is gain. Can I suggest if you've never done this before, you fill in this blank. For to me, to live is, here's your blank line. What would your wife say? To him, to my husband, to live is, what's the answer? Motorcycles, golf, baseball been very, very good to me, soccer, (laughs) whatever, right? Or if you looked at your wife, to her, to live is, Gucci, <laughs> I don't know, i got to make this up. I don't know, ladies. The mall. Do you see, if you can say, to me to live is Christ, then you can say, to die is gain. That's Paul. That's, hey, my suffering, whatever the Lord wants to do with me, I'm okay with because I've trusted For me to live is Christ. Go back to Job. I have to ask myself this question. To me to live is what? Who? For a lot of our culture, it's to me to live is me. Right? For a lot of our culture, it's to me to live is money. Me and money. To me to live is Social media. Fill in the blank. See, this is some of what we have to wrestle with. Paul reached into the book of Job, it would appear, using the same language, I know this will turn out for my salvation. So Job goes on in 1317. He says, listen carefully to my speech. Let my declaration fill your ears. 13, 18. Behold, now I've prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. Confidence. Who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Job has considered his approach carefully, but he believes he'll be vindicated in the end. He's a believer, and so he must come to God. But he says, only two things do not do to me, or grant me these two things, then I will not hide from your face. Remove thy hand from me, and let not the dread of thee terrify me. Please, Lord, lift your hand. Please, Lord, lift your dread. Now, God has allowed this, but God's not the one doing it to Job. Satan is, right? But Job doesn't know that. 
So Job is saying, Lord, please lift your hand. I don't want to be terrified of you anymore. You're my hope. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and then reply to me. Lord, like Esther of old who came before King Xerxes, would you extend the scepter of grace to me? I'm going to come and I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I'm going to ask you for grace. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. Lord, what did I do? Why dost thou hide thy face and consider me thine enemy? 25. Wilt thou cause a driven leaf to tremble? Or wilt thou pursue the dry chaff? That's what I feel like. For thou dost write bitter things against me. Dost make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. You might want to mark that because if a lot of us inherited the iniquities of our youth, we'd be in deep trouble. Those of you who came to Jesus Christ later in life probably have a long list of silly things you did in your youth. Can I get a witness? I, we don't need confessions right now, but I think you all can relate to this. And I'll speak for myself. I did so many stupid things between the ages of about 13 and 20. Times when I put my life right on the edge. Times when, but for the grace of God, I probably should be dead. Times when I risked everything for a stupid moment of fun, so-called fun. And if the Lord paid me back for the sins of my youth, <laughs> I'm in trouble. I'm so glad that God says I'm a God of redemption. He can even use your dumb mistakes to teach you big lessons. He says, you put my feet in the stocks, 27 you watch all my past. I feel like I'm a trapped man in the stocks. I feel like I'm a, in a prisoner camp doing work outside with those uh, police officers on horseback with guns pointed at me. You set a limit for the soles of my feet while I'm decaying like a rotten thing. My body is a disaster, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Job realizes that the root of the issue is sin, but he just doesn't know what he did He's been walking with the Lord for a while. He offers sacrifices even for his kids. He's blameless and upright. He's a worshiper of God. He's tried to live his life with integrity. And so he wonders, Lord, are you going back into the list of stuff that I did when I was young? Is that what this is about? Oh, I'm not sure I can even remember all that. Is, is, what is this about? Help me understand. I feel like a man in public disgrace, in the stocks, just waiting to die. What did I do? Chapter 14. You guys thought it couldn't be done. You're a miracle-believing people? Is that what I hear? Because I was about to say, oh, ye of little faith, but faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. So I understand. Joe may be saying something like this. Lord, have you ever been there? I thought I was right with you. How many of you? I thought I was doing all the right things. I've been witnessing to my friends. I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying like I never prayed before. And my life is a disaster. Well, that's because maybe you were watching a channel that said, once you become committed to Christ, everything's going to be perfect in your life. You'll be healthy and wealthy and everything's going to be good. Nope. Now, life is good when you're walking with Christ, no doubt. 
But it doesn't mean that you're not going to have spiritual warfare. It doesn't mean that you're going to be popular with everybody if you're preaching the gospel. Have you noticed? And so Job, in the final section, says, Man who is born of a woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. (laughs) Some of you are like, I'm marking that verse. That's mine right there. Like a flower who comes forth and withers, he also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Thou also dost open thine eyes on him and bring him into judgment with thyself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with thee. His limits thou hast set that he cannot pass. Turn thy gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his days like a hired man. If his life is so short, can't you just cut him some slack, Job is saying? Look at verse 4. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? The answer is no one except God. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If the blood of Jesus has not been applied to your life, this is just the truth of the gospel, you are still in your sin. And even your righteous deeds, so-called, are filthy rags before God. That's hard, isn't it? Hard for a modern listener to hear that, but here's the truth. No one can make themselves clean before God unless you get washed in the blood of Jesus. The heavy times in this world can be hard. I was reading a commentary this week, and the writer said that there was a man who wrote this paragraph and for most of his life, all he knew was war. He was involved in World War II. And, and so most of his life, he said he, he cannot remember 30 days of happiness in his whole life because he lived through a world war. Some of us don't realize how good we got it. When a man can reflect on his life and say, I don't even know if I had 30 days of happiness in my life because He had to live during a time of war. He had to do what he had to do. Sometimes heavy heavy times can seem like the norm and happy times can seem scarce. And the root of all these problems in a sinful, broken world is sin. And so sometimes we say, oh Lord, how long until you come? Job says there's hope for a tree when it's cut down that it will sprout again and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil. Many of you have seen a tree cut down. You think, man, that tree's finally had it in my backyard. And then you come out a year later and there's some little branches and some little green leaves. And you're like, it's back! The tree has resurrected! And then Job asks, why doesn't man? How can a tree be cut down in the prime of its life and make a comeback? And I watch person after person, funeral after funeral, of people going into the ground, made in the image of God, and they don't come back. I haven't seen one yet, Job might say. In fact, I buried 10 kids a few months ago, Job might tell you. I held 10 funerals. I don't see my kids coming back. Trees, they come back. But man dies and lies prostrate, man expires. And where is he? Joe might say, where are my kids? Is there an afterlife? Is there a heaven? 
Do you know that Jesus, when he was getting ready to die, told the apostles, heaven is my Father's house. And in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Heaven is real according to Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? In fact, he said, heaven is my Father's house. And there's plenty of space in my Father's house. Many dwelling places, many mansions, as the King James puts it. Where are people when they die? Jesus, addressing the Sadducees, says to them, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, even if a man dies, he will live again. How could Jesus say that? Because he says, I don't just teach about the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will live. Your loved one who died in Christ is alive. More alive than they've ever been. And they are going to rise. This is the good news. And Job is starting to move towards the resurrection. But first, a few more bummer verses. As water evaporates from the sea, evaporates from the sea, and a river becomes parched and dried up. You've seen that before. You know, one time there was a, a mighty river or a good stream running through a place, and now it's just parched and dried up. So man lies down and does not rise. Until the heavens be no more, he will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Now some people look at this verse and they say, See, the Bible teaches that people are not resurrected, there's no afterlife, and so forth. No, this is Job at a bummer moment, wondering about life and death. And it is true. If Jesus never entered the world and died on the cross, you and I are dead in our sin. It's true. Unless you believe that I am, John 8, 24, Jesus says, you will die in your sin. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no hope. But Job is going to shift, and he's going to say these words, Oh, that thou would hide me in Sheol, or the grave, that thou wouldst conceal me until thy wrath returns to thee, that thou wouldst set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. If you guys have a ESV or a NIV, it says I will wait until my renewal comes. That word in Hebrew literally means my alternation, my renewal. This is from Ash. Renewal is a lovely word for resurrection. A word that combines newness or renewal with continuity, emphasis, renewal. Even though all the pain Job, through all the pain, Job was convinced that his question would be answered in the affirmative. Job's personal suffering would be behind him one day as he would rise. Do you know, I've done so many memorial services and um, Lots of them have had pictures up at the front of grandma or grandpa, you know, a lot of people who lived a long life and they passed away and, you know, their, grand, their children and grandchildren, especially their grandchildren, knew them older. And so there's been many services where there's been a picture of 
the person who passed away in their younger years. And they were like, you know, strong and built and their hair was not white. And they were handsome or good looking. And the grandchildren are sometimes a little thrown by that. They're like, was that grandpa? No. Oh, yeah. And the other people around are like, yeah, you, want, you young whippersnapper. Do you see what's going to happen to you? Words of hope and encouragement to the little ones. Right? Age and time and mileage, it's what happens. But I once was young and strong and spry. And then I had to die. That was a rhyme. I just thought I'd go with it. Anyway, but here's the thing. I don't mean to make light of death, but here's the thing. Do you know that everyone, if that applies to you, if you put a loved one to rest, do you know that when they rise, they're going to be young and spry and perfect, without sin, without death, probably at the age of 18, in their prime, and it appears that the prime is going to stay and not go the way of the dodo. <laughs> oh man, it's hard. Because time goes by. How many of you have seen the latest craze? The thing, your app that ages you by 40 years. Anybody want to confess? You know the Ruskies now have a hold of that, right? Does that really even matter? I don't even know if that's what I heard. I meant the Russians. Anyway, how many of you have done the, the face app thing? I did not do it. Somebody did it for me. We will not mention their name for political reasons. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Anyway, and they did it, and they showed me the photo. Is it supposed to age you 40 years? I looked at the photo in horror. <laughs> and I am serious when I say that. Outright horror. And decided I do not want to live another 40 years. How many of you like the comedian Jim Gaffigan? You ever seen Jim? Pretty clean comedian. And he's always talking about donuts and how, you know, people and his doctor and people who love him tell him to stop eating donuts because you're going to die young. It'll probably take several years off your life. And Jim goes, he goes, does that really matter? Have you seen old people? Do you want to live that long? <laughs> Trying to make a case that you should eat your donuts. Anyway, what's my point? I have no idea. No, I'm just kidding. If a man dies, will he live again? Would you write in your Bible? Yes! Jesus says, because I live, John 14, 19, you will live also. That's Jesus. Now, Jesus either is the way, the truth, and the life, or he's not. Amen? Amen? And Jesus said, there's a day coming when, like what I, what I did with Lazarus, I'm going to call into the tombs and the dead are going to rise because life is in the sun. And some will rise to a resurrection of life and some to a resurrection of condemnation. Write down John 5, 21 through 29. Thou will call, I will answer thee. Thou will long for the work of thy hands one day, like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, I know you're going to long for the one you created. I know you'll long for me. I know you'll call me out of the grave, Lord. And I'll come to you because I love you and you love me. 
Here is the anticipation of the love of our resurrected and resurrecting Savior. For now that thou dost number my steps, thou dost not observe my sin. Job's talking about when it's all said and done, my transgression is sealed up in a bag and thou dost wrap up my iniquity. One day my sin will be in a trash bag, it'll be tightly wrapped up and thrown away. Praise the Lord. One day my sin won't matter anymore. Praise God. But, <laughs> now, just when we thought Job was getting positive, he's going to end with kind of a bummer because, remember, he's not at the end of his journey, so he keeps going back and forth. But as one writer put it, these are beautiful and final pictures of our sin finally dealt with. A time is coming when Job's sin, your sin, my sin, will be dealt with once and for all. It will be sealed in a garbage bag, thrown away, never to be reopened again. This is a wonderful glimpse of the gospel. But, and you may be one of those people always with a yeah, but, Job is there. He says, but the falling mountains crumbles away. Falling mountain crumbles away. The rock moves from its place. Final verses. Water wears away its stones. Its torrents wash away the dust of the earth so that thou dost destroy man's hope. Thou dost forever overpower him and he departs. Thou dost change his appearance and send him away. His sons achieve honor. He's talking about being gone and not being able to see what happens, but he does not know it. Or they become insignificant, but he does not perceive it. But his body pains him, and he mourns only for himself. I want you to turn all the way to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're done. Even though Job ends with kind of a bummer because he's not fully come to the realization of the gospel and who God is. 1 Corinthians 15. We've seen him question and doubt. The Bible never sugarcoats questions and doubts. But Job is beginning to anchor his hope in the living God and even in the resurrection. He will say later, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I will see God. This is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 51. I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to end with worship. Behold, I tell you a mystery, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when the, this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. That's what Jesus dealt with. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 
Father, thank you for these three chapters in Job. If a man dies, will he live again? The answer is yes. The truth of the matter is he will live in one of two places. Either with God in heaven or separated from the Lord. In a place Jesus you called hell. And since these realities exist, we want to take a moment just to celebrate the fact that you made a way for us to be in heaven. Our sin separated us from you. Jesus, you made a way. God, you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the bridge to God. Jesus is the savior of mankind. And if you're here and you've not met him, you're not sure that you know him tonight. Maybe you came because you're at a Job kind of moment in your walk. Would you reach out to him? He is literally a prayer away, but he's going to ask you to decide. And it's something like this. So if you want to pray it, this is the prayer. Jesus, come into my heart, come into my life. I turn from my sin and I place my trust in you. Be my Lord, my Savior, my God, and my King. I believe you died on that terrible cross to pay my sin debt, take God's wrath. I believe that you rose to defeat death, my mortal enemy. I want to know you. I turn my life over to you. I place my trust in you. And I ask you to help me to walk with you, to represent you, to share your love with others. In Jesus' name. If you're a backslidden Christian and you just got off the path and maybe life has thrown you a few curveballs and you've taken some hits and you, you've been hurt, the path back is just really simple. It's like the prodigal, you just have to come home. The father will have open arms for you. He'll have a hug, not a scolding. He'll just say, welcome home. Let's get back to work.